Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and MD. Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. And before we get into our true crime case for the day, I want to encourage you as a listener here on Murder in the Black that if you feel like there is a case that you have previously heard of and you feel like you want to make sure that that case is told, definitely send us a message on Instagram or Facebook or simply send us an email at our email address so that we can tell that story here on Murder in the Black. In addition to featuring stories about our theme this month, which is betrayal and deception, in the meantime, in between time of that theme, we will be also featuring cases that you guys have suggested that we tell here on Murder in the Black. And today's case is particularly special because one of our listeners by the name of Sharon Bryant reached out to us and heavily suggested that we cover this story. And as I was looking up the story, I realized that I never heard of it myself And not a lot of true crime creators have told this story, black true crime creators. So I can't wait to share that story with you guys. I want to let you know that this is our second time featuring a case suggestion by one of our listeners on Murder in the Black. I featured one of those stories about Asia Degree, which one of our listeners on Facebook suggested, and that is included in our paid subscription. So if you want to hear extra content, make sure that you sign up for our paid subscribers so you can access the Asia Degree story along with other cases that will not be featured on our regular platform. But let's go ahead and get into our true crime case for today. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. I've entitled today's episode, If Only You Would Have Reacted Sooner. Ramona Moore was born in 1981 in Guyana. Her parents immigrated to the United States and laid down roots in New York City, specifically the East Flatbush, Brooklyn area. Ramona was a high achiever throughout her formal education, and she remained a high achiever when she attended Hunter's College in 2003 She was 21 years old and was in her third year as a psychology major. She was an honor student and frequently found herself on the dean's list. Her mother describes her as shy, introverted, never partied, or had a boyfriend. However, other people said that she was young, beautiful, and upbeat. 
She worked as a receptionist, but when she wasn't working or attending classes, she frequently was at the local library where she loved to conduct research, which is something she was going to do in her career path. On April 23rd, 2003, everything was normal for Ramona. She told her mother at approximately 7.30 p.m. that she was going to head to Burger, T- Burger King, which was half a block away from where she lived. However, she never returned home. And her mother, Ellie Carmichael, promptly at 9 a.m. in the morning, went down to the NYPD and wanted to file a report for her daughter missing. Now, she told investigators that her daughter was a delicate child She recently just registered for summer classes and she would never miss class. And it just wasn't a part of her character to not call her mother or return phone calls. And this is basically what happened when she left for Burger King. She never called her mother again, never got back in contact with Ellie Carmichael. And she told investigators this is unlike her. She also mentioned that Ramona's friend... Gary Williams stopped by Ramona's apartment before she left to go to Burger King and he claimed that he hadn't seen her since. So they wrote down pretty much or pretty much listened to everything. They didn't write anything down and they told Ellie that she just needed to come back in 24 hours after Ramona had been missing for that amount of time because that was the protocol for them at that time. So she hesitantly goes back home and she waits until 7.30 on April 24th because that was 24 hours that she had been missing at that point. So instead of going back up to the police department, she decides to just call and file a missing persons report on the phone as she had been directed to. And when she tells the investigator on the phone exactly what she told them before, she informs them that it has been 24 hours. I'm ready to file a missing persons report on my daughter's behalf. The investigator on the telephone is completely disrespectful and outright nasty to her. He tells her that Ramona is 21 years old. She is probably with her boyfriend and she'll come back whenever she pleases. And don't call back trying to report her missing. She'll show up. As you can imagine, Ellie is completely dejected. She's frustrated. She can't believe that the people that she's supposed to trust to help her refuse to help her. And even after she follows protocol, they're still giving her a hard time. But she's not easily swayed. She knew her daughter. She knew her daughter's character and she knew that something was wrong. And so even though she kept hitting a brick wall with NYPD, she did not let that sway her. The very next morning, she called on her enforcement, which was her family. She took four family members down to the police department to file a complaint and to file the missing persons report that she was trying to file in the first place. She tells the investigators what the investigator told her on the phone just yesterday, complained to them that that was 
totally disrespectful and rude. And she followed protocol. She has to file a missing persons report. And then she directs them to get in contact with Gary Williams. She says, listen, he was the last person who saw my daughter. Maybe he will be able to tell you what happened. Please get in contact with him. And investigators tell her, no, we're not going to do that because your daughter's 21 years old. She has the right to go missing. And listen, they were so bold enough to show her their docket of missing persons and that they just did not have the time or the resources to figure out where her daughter went. And they turned her away for the third time. As I said before, Ellie Carmichael was not easily broken and she was committed to finding out what happened to her daughter and bringing her home. So she walks away with her family frustrated, but she fights. She creates flyers and she passes them out in the neighborhood. She reaches out to the higher ups in law enforcement and complains to the local politicians that nothing is being done. The police have not started an investigation and under the pressure of the politicians and higher ups in the law enforcement department, the police finally buckle to the pressure and they opened an investigation on April 28th, 2003. However, although her efforts were admirable, we find out that the police were a little too late because an anonymous tip comes to Ellie Carmichael right before Mother's Day. A person calls anonymously and tells her that they got her number from a flyer and they heard screams coming from a house on Snyder Avenue. It was a male and he claimed that he believed that Ramona was dead and her body was wrapped in plastic. That same afternoon that that call comes in, just two weeks after Ramona went missing, a body was found wrapped in a blanket underneath an ice cream truck. Now, the body was so badly decomposed that only dental records could confirm the person's identity. And the medical examiner did observe the dental records and they were able to confirm that it was the body of Ramona Moore. The autopsy revealed that Ramona had endured a blow to her jaw that shattered it completely. Her cheek and facial bones were shattered. Her ribs were broken and she had a fractured hip bone. She had a broken nose and cuts to her face and feet. She was beaten in the face with a hammer. She had several cigarette burns on her eyelids and around her eyes and face. After police are able to confirm that it is Ramona Moore and they uncover exactly how she died, that is when... Ellie Carmichael reveals to them the tip that she received that same day. Now, according to the anonymous tipper, they tell Ellie a specific address on Snyder Avenue. And so the police equip themselves to go out to this specific address and find out who lives there and 
what happened to Ramona Moore. But when they get to Snyder Avenue, they find out that the address that they were given doesn't exist. So instead of just completely giving up, they decide to go door to door on Snyder Avenue, hoping to uncover or to get some type of tips to find out where Ramona was killed. And this is when they reach one residence where a man becomes completely hostile when he opens the door to authorities. He becomes so hostile that he pulls the gun out on police, which leads to a standoff. Now, the police are able to apprehend this young man, and it is revealed that he is 19-year-old Troy Hendricks. They bring him down to the, to the station to question him and try to figure out why is he being so hostile. But that's when they are able to uncover that Troy Hendricks is actually a suspect in the sexual assault of a 15-year-old girl. And this 15-year-old girl just that day escaped Troy Hendricks' home. So on April 27, 2003, according to this 15-year-old young girl, she says that she was strapped to a chair in a basement of a home on Snyder Avenue, and she was continuously sexually assaulted by two men. She claimed that when the two men fell asleep from being too intoxicated, she chewed through the duct tape on her mouth and escaped the shoelaces that were tied around her ankles and immediately rushed up the stairs. That is when she found the grandmother of one of the men asleep on the couch. And so she wakes this woman up and explains to her exactly what happened, hoping that this older woman is able to help her. But after she explains what happened, this older woman says, I'm not going to help you. And that's when she realizes she has to get out of here. She's not going to receive any help from anyone in this household. So she attempts to run, but that's when the older woman comes behind her and begins to scream, which arouses the two men who were asleep downstairs. Now, the 15-year-old young woman then runs up a balcony and jumps off of the balcony, but that was not before one of the men went behind her and they actually fall together onto the concrete and she's yelling and screaming trying to free herself but this man puts his hand around her mouth and by God's grace she's able to free herself from his grasp and she immediately seeks the help of police and files a police report. She mentions to investigators that the men then tell her when they kidnapped her, that if she did not cooperate, that they would kill her like they did the girl last night. And her eyes are duct taped, her mouth is duct taped, so she's not able to see them, but they turn her head behind her, what she believes is behind her, and they tell her, the, the girl that we killed last night, she's right over here, don't you smell that? And she does smell this foul odor and she just presumes that, wow, they're really being serious. Like, I have to cooperate. So the police now have the first account of this 15-year-old girl. But at the same time, a 19-year-old man comes forward to the police named Ramondo Jack. And he tells the police that he actually visited Troy's home around the time that Ramona had disappeared. He claimed that he saw Ramona alive before she died and he kept seeing her face, which prompted 
him to come to authorities and tell them what he knew. Now, Romano Jack tells investigators that he and Troy were childhood friends and he used to live in the same neighborhood that Troy lives in currently. And he actually knew another man that Troy ran with by the name of Kaysen Pearson. He said that both Kaysen and Troy belonged to the Bloods gang. Romano said that he was actually in the old neighborhood because his sister was throwing his fiance a baby shower. So while he was just trying to kill time until the baby shower started, he pulled up on Troy for a visit. He said initially they just engaged in small talk with Troy and Kaysen, but at some point this conversation took a turn for the worst. And Troy and Kaysen start boasting and bragging that they kidnapped a girl from off the street and they brought her back home. And she was actually down in their basement where they roughed her up and had their way with her. According to Romando, he was in complete disbelief. And Troy and Kaysen were bound to make a believer out of them. So they both lifted up their shirts to show that they had actually beat this beat this girl up because their shirts were bloodstained. And while still in disbelief, they said, well, we're going to make a believer out of you yet still. And they brought him down to the basement. That is when Troy told Ramona, who was in the basement on a couch with a pillow over her head. He told her to say, what's up, bitch? Tell Ramondo what we did to you. They took the pillow covering off of her face so that she could speak. She was only wearing a t-shirt and her underwear. She was completely horrified, according to Ramondo. She was bruised and had bandages on her hands and feet. She had cigarette burns in the shape of a triangle on her face, and she had a chain around her neck. She did recount to Ramondo what happened. She claimed that two men dragged her off of the sidewalk into an apartment, and when she resisted, they beat her up. They had her in a fetal position on the floor at some time during the torture, and they put a chain around her neck and attempted to saw her hands and feet off. Ramondo asked Troy and Kaysen why they did this to her, and they responded that they actually did it just for fun. They then asked Troy and Kaysen, asked Ramona, what was the difference between them and Ramondo? And she replied that she felt like Ramondo was a nice guy and believed that he would help her. But sadly, Ramondo didn't help her. He left that visit and attended his baby shower and then went back to the D.C. Maryland area. Now, Romano claims, and there is a clip of him online explaining why he didn't immediately go to law enforcement and report what he had saw. He said that he didn't report it because he was scared of retribution from the men, considering they were both a part of a well-known gang. And he was not confident that the police would protect him. And so he sat on everything he knew. But... It is apparent that, or according to Ramondo, he said he mentioned this to his uncle who lived in the neighborhood. 
So when he saw the news that a survivor escaped from the home on Snyder Avenue, he believed that it was actually Ramona. And he thought that maybe his uncle did tell law enforcement and that she was freed. However, he realized that it wasn't Ramona and it was actually the second victim who was the 50-year-old young girl. Now, Ramona was held and tortured for three days. And I don't know who this is according to. I'm assuming someone. Troy and Kaysen asked Ramona, how did she want to die? Before beating her in the face with a hammer, which led to her death. But had Romando called the cops, she would have been found alive and the 15-year-old girl would have never been targeted. So now that Romando reveals all of this information to law enforcement, law enforcement thinks that Romando's uncle is actually the person who called in that anonymous tip to Ellie Carmichael, Ramona's mother. But the screams that he heard wasn't Ramona, even though he kind of like concluded it was Ramona because that's what Romando said. But actually the screams that he heard were the 15-year-old victim, not Ramona. So once they have all of this information from both Ramondo and the 15-year-old victim, they're able to realize that both of these crimes are connected. And they have Troy in custody and they start to look for Case and Pearson. And once friends and family of Case and Pearson are made aware of all that he is alleged of doing, they go ahead and provide the address to where the police can find Kaysen. And police find him in a Yonkers apartment. However, Kaysen was a coward. He wanted the police to end him before he could even get arrested and go to jail. So he barricaded himself in this Yonkers apartment in a standoff. Thankfully, the police shot him in his leg and then arrested him so that he could face the music. Now, in January of 2006, both men were charged with five counts of first-degree murder, kidnapping, and torture of Ramona, and they were also charged separately for the 15-year-old victim. They immediately went to trial, and on the first day of the trial, the first victim testified, but everything went totally and horribly wrong. Kaysen came into the courtroom with a hidden shank. If you don't know what a shank is, it's basically a makeshift knife that people in jail and prison make. He stabbed his lawyer in the chin with that shank. And then Troy jumps over the defense table and goes for the court officer's gun. Kaysen and Troy winked at each other before attempting their escape and stabbing the lawyer and then attempting to get the court officer's gun. Once Troy was subdued, he announced to the courtroom that he wasn't going to hurt anyone, but he just wanted to harm himself. Now, Kaysen's lawyer received seven stitches in his chin, and seven court officers were injured. The judge 
of course, called a mistrial because the jury would have been tainted by what they saw that day and they would have been unable to render a fair judgment. Pearson told a stunned courtroom that he did it for fun. It was fun to see a system who had so much control and power lose it even for a second. He said it was fun to see the judge running away, bumping his knee, and that that is the most fun that he has seen in his entire life. Troy and Kaysen received additional charges. They were charged with assault, attempted escape, and possession of a weapon. A new trial was rescheduled a month later. On March 24, 2006, they both were found guilty on all charges. The judge threw the book at them and called them worse than animals for their escape attempt. They both received life without the possibility of parole plus 22 years for their attempted escape attack. They maintained their innocence. Ellie Carmichael, Ramona Moore's mother, filed a civil rights lawsuit against the NYPD, claiming their practice of not making prompt investigations of a missing person's claims of African-Americans while making prompt investigation for white individuals. Less than two months before Ramona Moore vanished, Redland Armavoa, a wife of a doctor who was white, went missing on the Upper East Side. The day after... Redland Armavaro went missing. NYPD launched an investigation of Redland Armavaro along with her dog who went missing as well. NYPD called a press conference, assigned two dozen detectives to the case full time. They went door to door with flyers. They obtained her bank records, analyzed surveillance tape in an effort to find her. NYPD even offered a police van to go around her neighbor neighborhood on a loudspeaker to announce to witnesses and neighbors of the tips they obtained about her disappearance. They consulted with the psychic. They got a bloodhound to track her scent. Sadly, her body surfaced in the East River. It has not been determined if she was pushed, jumped, or fail. Ellie Carmichael commented that if Ramona was a white kid, the NYP would have never done this. She recounted that she feels the same pain and emotions as a white person. My daughter is dead. She experienced physical torture, but the police put us through mental torture. Dealing with the police was more of a nightmare than finding Ramona's body. She has resigned herself to the fact that Ramona was dead, but the police were nasty. In 2014, a federal district judge dismissed her case, claiming a lack of evidence that systemic bias was shown. In December of 2004, a Ramona law was mentioned, but however, it was never brought back up. Ellie Carmichael says that she's not happy with a lot of things that went on in her daughter's case, but she is happy with the sentence that the killers received. The same systemic justice that put the people behind bars that killed her daughter also committed an injustice against Ellie Carmichael, 
and Ramona Moore. This is the case of Ramona Moore. Takeaway. The case of Ramona Moore exemplifies exactly why me and my sister decided to start the podcast Murder in the Black to bring awareness to crimes that happened within our community and the fact that our crimes are untold, minimized, and ignored by not only the media, but by law enforcement within our own communities. This case took me on an emotional roller coaster, and you will be able to tell for sure by my takeaway that I am completely enraged. But when I think about how I can best encapsulate how I feel and the takeaway that is not so much a takeaway, but just really my raw emotions about this case, I guess what I would put it into was a chronological order of what I believe or who I believe is to blame for Ramona Moore's death. Obviously, sitting right there at the top at number one is Troy and Kaysen. They committed this evil, this horrific atrocity on a young girl who was just trying to go to Burger King and return back to her apartment. But right up there with them, I also have to put the NYPD because they were disrespectful. As Ellie Carmichael said, they were nasty and they kept minimizing the disappearance of her daughter. And so the very people who she trusted to help her, the very people that Ramona Moore probably would go to if she found herself in trouble and needed help, the police, the community helper, they betrayed her and they had a hand in her death because they were so slow to open the investigation because they refused to even foul the missing person's report. And had it not been for Ellie Carmichael's tenacity to keep going, to not be easily swayed, to advocate for her daughter, I don't know that we would have ever found out what happened to Ramona Moore. And in my opinion, had they even put a fourth, not even half, a fourth of what they did in the Redland Armavara's case, had they put a fourth of what they did for her, which, by the way, Redland Armavara deserved all that they put in her case, all the resources that they offered up. She deserved that. But so did Ramona. Ramona deserved the same resources because she was a member of the community. She deserved NYPD's help. And it is such a cop out for NYPD to feel like, well, we did our investigation. We brought the people to justice, but you did it at the hands of injustice. And so in my opinion, I believe they go right up there with the murderers. And if I could put them on trial, I absolutely would. And they would go to jail. Do not pass. Go. Do not collect $200 because you had a hand in the death of Ramona. Had they started that investigation? I don't know that Ramona would be dead today. And of course, I cannot go without saying that Ramondo Jack 
has a part to play. But before I get into the part that he has to play, because I obviously put him as the second person who is to blame for Ramona Moore's death, I have to bring your attention to the story that keeps being told within our community and our interaction with law enforcement. It's shady. We feel and we know because of the experiences that we have that law enforcement just don't give a damn about us. They just don't care about black folks. And we're not just saying that because that's how we feel. We're saying that because stories like Ramona Moore keep occurring within our community. You guys keep minimizing our experiences, our real tangible experiences and you say that you don't care because that's the message that NYPD has put out in our community. So we already have this very tumultuous relationship with law enforcement outside of them not taking our true crime cases seriously, right? We have a really arduous relationship with them as a community period and have had with them for years, generations, in fact, in America. But that's another subject for another time. But I want to bring your attention to the fact that we have a tense relationship with them when it comes to crimes that happen within our community with our people, right? So as I reflect on why Ramondo Jack has a part to play, I'm not giving him a free pass, not even a little, because I do think that you should always come forward, even if you are very scared of the consequences that could come from you coming forward. But I do want to give a very clear picture into why I understand why Ramondo felt the way he did, because the reasoning why he gave on why he didn't come forward initially was because he feared the consequences of Troy and Kaysen. They were a part of the blood gang. You know, he felt like maybe they could get to him or reach him all the way in D.C. I get it. Like, I think that is a real fear. But I think where I give him even more of a pass is because he felt like the police aren't going to, they're not going to do anything to protect me. They're not going to help me. And it's that type of feeling that keeps a lot of people from coming forward and snitching and telling. And I'm saying snitching because that's what, you know, people in the hood, they ascribe that to snitching. But just getting people to tell the truth, to come forward and tell the truth, because the other half of the crimes that occur in our community is like police and law enforcement not taking it seriously and ignoring our problems that really are problems and that exist but then the other half of that is is that nobody will say what they know because they don't feel like the police will protect them if they do come forward so I get that part I feel like I understand that part of why Ramondo didn't come forward more than any other part of what he said because I think honestly if you can put yourself in the perspective of Ramona is my sister. She could be my sister. She could be my daughter. She could be my wife. She could be my girlfriend. She could be my cousin. She, if you put yourself in that perspective, it's easy to tell. But if you think the same people that you would go to for help to tell, to get that person out of the situation are not going to listen to you. And even if they do, they're not going to protect you. Then that even, that gives you even more of a reason not to come forward. 
So I do blame him. I do wish he would have came forward because as I said in the case, had he came forward, had he came forward, Ramoto probably would be still here today. And that 15 year old girl would not have to relive trauma because she's traumatized for the rest of her life, for the rest of her life. And I want to bring attention to the fact that when you don't act in these situations, when you don't act swiftly, you are literally creating an environment for this atrocity to happen to someone else. And for that reason, we as a community must speak up. We must speak up. So as I've said before, I would put just to review, I would put NYPD right up there with the murderers who committed this heinous and evil act, had they responded, had they opened this investigation, they did, wouldn't even have to wait on a person like Ramondo Jack to finally speak because they would have maybe found something out had they just done something, had they just freaking opened the case. But they didn't. They did not. And the last person, y'all, and this is a poll question, is, what do you think about that grandmother? What do you think about that grandmother? And if indeed, once the 15-year-old victim came upstairs and woke her up and said, hey, these men did this to me downstairs, help me. She was like, I can't help you. I'm not going to help you. Do you think it was like just fear of being caught, you know, and not wanting to get involved? This pass passive you know, action in our community has to stop. And if I, like I said, I can't be the judge and jury, but if I was, I would send her to jail too. Cause you just can't convince me. She didn't know that that 50 year old girl was down there, but let's give her the benefit of the doubt, even if she didn't. But once she did know, she still didn't do anything about it. And then if you knew about that, or even if you did know about it, but once you knew about it, did you know about Ramona? Did you know about that? Y'all, it's just, this case takes me through and it makes me angry and it's a righteous anger, right? Like I just feel so bad for Ramona Moore. I feel so bad for Ellie Carmichael and I would love to pick MD's brain and ask her why the federal district judge threw it out. Because in my mind, the comparison of Redland Armavara's case and Ramona Moore's case and how the NYPD handled both of those cases for me, it proves a systemic bias. But I know that within the legalities and the law room and the definitions therein, there is a burden of proof that you have to prove. But my God, I feel like it's been proven. So tell me what you guys think. I'm I'm going to just not even ask a specific question about this case. I just want to know what you think about this case. But let's go ahead and get into the poll and question from last week's case. So last week's poll question was, do you believe the charge of manslaughter fit the crime? 36% of you said yes, 18% said no, and 45% said no, it was self-defense. Moving on to our question, I asked if you were in Darlene's shoes, what would you have done? 
Sonia said I would have asked for help from someone at the police station to see if they could get me somewhere else to live if my own daughter could not. Kiki said I would have reached out to either a social worker or extended family. Maybe seeing other people step into the situation would have forced her daughter to realize the gravity of the situation. Lastly, Christina said I would have done the same thing. I have been in this type of situation and I'm thankful it didn't end like that. I appreciate the fact that Darlene was remorseful. This wasn't a premeditated crime. Totally agree with all of you and definitely think that this is a situation that anybody could find themselves in, especially dealing with a roommate and somebody you think you know. Heck, you could even find yourself dealing with that with a family member. So definitely a relatable experience. But that is our poll and question and answer section for last week's crime case. If you haven't checked that out, definitely check it out. It is entitled My House 2. I want to go ahead and encourage you guys before we go to share if you care this episode and any other episodes that you have particularly liked this year with someone that you know loves true crime or maybe somebody who you're not really sure if they like true crime just spread the love also before the end of the year want to encourage everybody to subscribe to our paid subscriber gain access to new and future episodes that we may or may not release to our main platform also want to encourage you guys to Yes, go ahead and drop us some case suggestions because I'm really, really loving all the cases that you guys have suggested so far. So until next time, friends, this is Murder in the Black.